Our scripture today is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedalium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Uh, Thanks again for all who were able to come to the ordination service last Sunday. Uh, I've gotten lots of questions this week. How do you feel now? (laughs) I feel the same, only now I can call down divine fire. So... uh, (laughs) <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't announce that and make it public, but just wait to the end of the service, you'll see. So, Actually, uh, the major change will be that I'll uh, have the honor and privilege of serving communion to you and with you and for you uh, today. And so that'll be something that it's something that I've looked forward to all week and that uh, I'm very thankful to God for. So um, thanks again for all of you who were there. Okay, last week uh, we saw that Genesis 1 verse 2 presents us with something of a problem. You expect the problem to come in chapter 3 with the fall, but we talked a little bit about the verse formless and void. The earth that God had created was formless and void. 
which means that it was uninhabitable, was the way we talked about it last week, and uninhabited. So there were, there were, there was not a place for people to live, and there were no people living there. And last week we spent most of our study of Genesis 1 talking about those people that God created and what they were like, created in His image, dignified, filled with humility, prepared to serve and worship the only glorious creator the universe has known, and to obey the king who reigns supreme over the universe. And as we continue this series, which we're calling God's Big Picture, uh, God's Big Picture, what I invite you to do is to continually ask yourself each week, who are God's people? What is happening to them at this point in time? What's happening as this story unfolds? And today, we're going to hang out in creation just a little bit more. So we've turned from Genesis 1. We haven't gotten very far. We're in Genesis 2. Uh, soon, we're going to start taking big leaps through the Old Testament. But um, what you see in Genesis 2 is creation from a, a different angle. So if in Genesis 1, you got kind of like the big picture, the wide-angle lens view, kind of like the cosmic scope of what's happening um, as God the Creator is creating all of humanity... In Genesis 2, you sort of zoom in, and you get a a complementary picture of the same story, only this time you see particular people, Adam and Eve, and you see a particular place, this this Garden of Eden, where God puts them to live. And and, and again, as a reminder, we're we're still not interested in scientific precision. You're still going to have 21st century questions about the text that don't get answered by the text but it is, it is nonetheless not a stretch to say that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 both together fit and work together in a complementary way to teach us who God is, what we are like as humans, and what this place that he has designed for us should be like. And so today, that's what we're going to focus on. If last week we were talking about the people, who are the people that God created, today we want to, we want to focus on the place What is this place that he has made, and what's it like, and what's it about? And so I want you to keep asking, what is the place that God has provided for his people? And what I think you're going to see is that it's a place of abundance, it's a place of provision, it's a place of life, where God gives life and where he sustains life. It's a place where humans enjoy the work that they're doing. And where they have relationships that flourish without shame. Now, the only problem is going to come in Genesis 3, and you're going to get there next week, and Steve Smallman will talk to you a little bit about the fall. And I'm not, I don't want to preempt too much what he says, but there is a little bit of a place to go ahead and start talking about this when we think of all of that God has provided, all of this provision. One of the problems is that humans, as humans, we have a curious tendency to reject the provision that God has given to us. So he'll provide abundantly for us, um, and oftentimes we reject that provision. I think one of the, probably the classic illustration of this comes from Jesus' story of the, the parable of the prodigal son that he tells in Luke 15. You have a wealthy father. The wealthy landowning father has two sons, younger son, older son. The younger son isn't satisfied with his life for one reason or another. So he says, hey, I want your inheritance now. I want your money, dad, now. I don't care. I wish you were dead. I just want what you have. And then he goes off 
And, and if you've read the story, you know, he squanders the wealth in riotous living, and, and, and he ends up destitute and alone, helpless. And so he comes running back to the father, and he says, Father, you know, for, forgive me. I, I, I'm not even worthy to be your son anymore. Uh, why don't you just treat me as one of your servants? Just take me in as a servant. And what, what is striking is that the older son who remains with the father is is jealous of the father's response. So if you remember, the father says, no, I have a feast prepared for you. And he says, here, I'm going to clothe you with the best clothes, and I'm going to give you the, my ring, and, and I'm going to welcome you back in. And the older son, of course, says, hey, what's the deal? What's the deal with that? I've been here the whole time. I haven't got anything. And here's what's what's really striking to me is the way the father responds. He says, son... You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. There's no reason for the younger son to demand some special inheritance now because he's already been provided for. He's already been given everything that he needs, and there's no reason for the older son to complain because he also has already been given everything that he needs. But it's what we do. In a similar way, we, we, we unwisely reject the gifts and the provision and the goodness that God has given us. He has given you beautiful, beautiful gifts. He has given you life. He has given you work in this world that he created. He has given you worship and a relationship with him. He offers to you all sorts of relationships around you and other people to live with. But we do all sorts of destructive things to the good gifts that he gives us. We do all sorts of destructive things. We may misunderstand them. You may think, no, work isn't good. Work is inherently bad. And it's painful and it's troubling and it's a problem. Or you may think, um, relationships, they're not working out for me the way that I want them to. So therefore they're, they're meaningless, they're pointless. I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to be alone. And oftentimes then we abandon the gifts that God has given us. Or we replace them. We replace them with our own idea of what they should look like. Hey, I'm going to live life my way. I'm going to have relationships the way I want on my own terms. I will only worship in the way that I want to and when I want to. But in Genesis 2, you'll see that because God provides for you, because he protects you, Because of his abundant provision and protection, you should receive that protection rather than casting it aside, rather than abandoning it, rather than setting it, setting it off and setting it to the side. And he's drawing you near to him, to his place of abundant life. So take a look back at the text. This is what I want to do with Genesis 2. I want to see what it is that God provides for humans. And another part of, another way of asking this question is basically to say, what would the perfect place look like? What would the perfect place look like? And Eden kind of taunts us because it ends so quickly. In Genesis chapter 2, you just wanted to keep on going. Can you please give us some more details? But we can come up with a whole list actually here. And actually the sermon today will be just a list of things that God provides and and uh, ways that we can search for him and find those things that he has given. So first of all, the first thing that God gives is life. God provides life. 
to the humans that he has, cre- that he has created. So um, just like in Genesis chapter 1, where God was the primary creator, he was the chief actor, he's the one doing everything, the same thing happens here in Genesis 2. You'll see um, that he is the one that forms the man in verse 7. He's the one that plants this garden in verse 8. He's the one that puts the man in the garden in verse 15. He's the one that creates the woman. Humans are, are relatively passive here. They're having things done to them, but not much is required of them. Sort of like being ordained. <laughs> That's what everyone asked me. Are you, are you nervous about the ordination? I said, well, I don't really have to do anything. I have a lot of things done to me, <laughs> but I don't have to do anything. People pray for me. People tell me what to do and charge me. And in the same way here, the, the humans are passive, but God is like a cosmic potter. He is fashioning the man out of dust. Look closely at verse 7 and verse 8. You'll see this picture of God as a creator, as an artist. It says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And even though man is dust, even though man is clay, he comes to life when God breathes his very breath into him. That separates man from the animals. He has a distinct kind of life, both in his physical life and his spiritual existence. I think many of you have probably seen a picture of uh, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel painting with all the things over there. And when he gets to this point, I don't know if you, you, you noticed this. I, had, I was reading a book that pointed this out. I had never really thought of it before. But the picture of God there has this strong arm. You can go back and kind of do a Google search for it. It's really muscular, and he's kind of above Adam, and he's pointing down. And if you look and see, maybe those of you who are art majors already know this, but Adam's arm is sort of up like this. It's kind of, it's limp. You know, God is the one that is empowering him. And Adam is just there waiting loosely for God to inspire him, for God to give him his life and to give him his breath and to give him his existence. But if you keep looking, you'll see that God, God, God does more than simply make Adam exist. This is not just a subsistence existence. God surrounds him with abundance. Adam's not just getting by. Look at verse 9. When God places him in the garden, look at all the things that he gives to him. He, it says he makes to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That means that each day when Adam wakes up, there's like a banqueting table spread for him. And it's appealing, it's enticing, but not only that, it seems to be totally satisfying, totally fulfilling. And this makes sense out of verses 10 through 14, which kind of seem like an excursus, seems like a little bit of an aside, this whole deal about the river. But what does a river symbolize in the ancient Near East? Where rivers are, that's the place where life is. And that's even true for us today. I mean, most of our cities are around the coastlines or where major tributaries are. Where rivers are, that is a place where life flows in abundance. And look, it flows out of Eden, and it it turns into four rivers that that, that go throughout all of the earth, it seems. And wherever those rivers are, there's gold, and there is 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 bdellium, some sort of fine-smelling perfume, and there's onyx, there's, there's stones and gems and richness and goodness and life flowing out. And the idea here is not to, like... Go searching for the exact location where the Garden of Eden was. (laughs) Although we had a good time in the staff meeting trying to figure out where it might be. And if you want to give Steve Smallman a hard time, ask him about Brazil. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, but do that. We We had too much fun on Tuesday trying to figure that out. The point, though, is to see it as a beginning of life, to see it as the source of life, to see it as a place of richness 
and abundance. And why is Adam's life so abundant? His life is abundant because he lives before the face of God. Look at verse 16 and look at verse 17. The Lord God commanded the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, God actually speaks to Adam. He provides him with his word. He provides him. He doesn't just leave him in the dark. He doesn't just leave him uncertain about how this thing is going to work. God says, I'm going to define the parameters of the relationship. And he says, look, I want to point out to you, there's abundance all around you. I have provided for you and I have given you myself. And this is how we're going to relate. There's one thing I don't want you to do. There's all this abundance. One thing I don't want you to do. It's kind of like, this is like the very first DTR. So, you know, you're, you're dating your girlfriend, and you're kind of like, it is, it really is. <laughs> hang with me, hang with me. Okay. You're dating a girl, everything gets kind of awkward, you want to know, how is this going to work? Does she like me? Do I like her? What's going to happen in our future? Will we have babies? And so you have to have the DTR, you have to define the relationship, you finally have to sit down and get to it. What's this thing going to really be about? And in this case, God, that's exactly what he's doing. We use all kinds of elaborate language for it, like covenant. But what it is, is it's God himself establishing a relationship. This is how it's going to work, Adam. You have everything you need, but you have to take me at my word. You have to trust my authority. You have to worship me alone. You have to listen to me. The only thing you cannot do is what I tell you not to do. And specifically what this tree is, is not my chief concern right now. I'm going to leave that one to Steve for next week. The chief thing to know is this. God is telling Adam, I've given you everything you need, but you cannot be me. You cannot be God. You have to listen to what I say. And if you put yourself over me, if you disobey, if you try to define the relationship outside of the context that I have set for you, death will ensue. At that point, you, he says, will surely die. But should Adam obey, should he take life on God's terms, there is another tree, if you look back at verse 9, there's another tree in the garden, the tree of life. And most commentators think that that is a tree that if Adam would eat it, having passed the test, having listened to God, having made it through the probation, then at that point and in that place, he could eat this tree of life and make this blissful state of innocence something that's permanent, something that lasts forever, something that would never fade away. So the question to ask yourselves is, where have you already, we can go ahead and start to apply just a little bit, where have you seen God providing for you? What have you done with the provision that he has given you? He has given you your life. He has given you, he set the parameters of the relationship. He has honored you by entering into a relationship with you. But perhaps, perhaps right now you are feeling lifeless. Maybe right now you are feeling empty. Maybe right now you are feeling like, I don't know this God, this creator, or maybe I've forgotten what it is to know him. And he's calling you to renew your trust 
and to renew your faith in him. Let your emptiness and your uncertainties drive you closer to him. And this doesn't just mean like getting back to the garden. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of, if you, if you read lots of romantic literature, which is some of my favorite, like William Blake and Wordsworth and all those guys, those guys are like, we gotta get back to the garden, you know? And what does that mean? That means like throwing off the institutions that enslave us. That means escaping the, th- the, the, the sort of, you know, smog-filled city. And oftentimes it means getting back to nature. For Blake, there's one story that says he would sit out in the back garden with his wife naked. And when people passed by, they would ask him, why are you guys naked? He said, oh, come on in. We're Adam and Eve in the garden. Here we are. You know, there's all sorts of ways that people think they could reach this innocence. Joni Mitchell's song, Woodstock, about that entire movement, says the same thing. We were golden. We were stardust. we got to get back. we got to get back to the garden. We've got to make ourselves free. But nakedness isn't going to make us free. Nature alone isn't going to make us free. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll have not yet made us free. It's not just the, the exterior things that are present in the garden. We have to get back to the the author of life himself, the one who provides, the one who set up this garden in the first place. I invite you to look, look to him for life. Look to him as the one who gives life. Look to him as the one who will provide for all that you need. Okay, let's, let's move forward. What else do we see in the garden? What else would we find in this perfect place? What else? was man and woman created to do. And in the Garden of Eden, one of the things that you'll see is work. So not only do you see life, not only do you see worship, you also see work. And it is enjoyable, good work. It's before the fall. Like, a lot of us think that what happens is work itself is bad, that there's something wrong with it. I even heard someone um, giving a, a sermon who said, who equated the pain that we have in work with something that happened during creation, not with something that came into effect in, in the fall. So you, you, you were created to work. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but you were created to work. And at the fall, work became painful and, and it involved suffering and it involved struggling. But work itself is good. Let's take a look back here. Okay. Remember, um, in the ancient Near East, a garden is not just like a raised bed in your backyard where you go grow squash. This is not just a, don't think of an old man in a garden, kind of like a retired guy putzing around and just um, growing vegetables to give to his grandkids. In the ancient Near East, only kings have the power and the resources to cultivate gardens, and only kings have the time and the luxury to enjoy them. So look at verse 15. It says, God put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. There, what you should think of is a king who, having conquered his enemies, having conquered his enemies, now has the privilege of cultivating peaceful space and protecting it from the threat of harm. And what Adam's doing in working is essentially imitating God, the creator himself. Remember, this this God is a God who provides life. What does this gardener do? He maintains the life of the garden. Not only that, but if you take Genesis 2 along with Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that we looked at last week, where, where uh, man is called to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, 
to keep it, to be fruitful and to multiply, you'll see that Adam's rule involves not only gardening, not only guarding the garden, but also expanding it. Okay, so there's this earth that God has created, there's Eden, and then there's this Garden of Eden. And it seems like the image that we're supposed to get from all of this together is that Adam is supposed to extend that peaceful reign of Christ throughout all of the earth. And we even see him exercising some of this kingly authority in verse 19 where he's naming the animals. He has a job to do, and that means that God has provided him with a job Work is not bad, it's good. And that should be should provide us with a radical point of departure, especially for those of you who are interested in the question, what should I do with my life? When I, when any of you out there are interested in that question, when I first came to Liberty, Jeff Bradford gave me kind of the, um, he, he called it info dump, you know, 1.0 and then info dump 2.0 and info dump 3.0. And so for three weeks, I would walk into the office and Jeff would say, here's everything you need to know about Liberty. <laughs> and one of the things he said is he said, people at Liberty are dealing with the three shuns. And I don't know if he ever said this to you guys too, or if this was just something that kind of was in the back of his brain. There's a lot floating around back there. <laughs> but he said, they're interested in location. Where am I going to live? Am I going to live in Philadelphia? Am I going to move to Michigan? Am I going to go to Atlanta? Where am I going to be? Where am I going to be? Where am I going to be? And he said they're interested in vocation. What am I going to do with my life? Am I going to keep this job that I have now? Am I going to find another one? Am I going to start my own business? What is it that I'm going to do? And then he said relations. Vocation, location, relation. Those are the things that probably occupy, and relation just means who am I going to be with, who am I going to be friends with, who am I going to get married to, who am I going to relate to. And I think that there is probably not a more important uh, task for us, and I don't have all the answers to it, and a lot of work and reading and thinking needs to be done, and I'd love to do it together with you for the short time that I'm here, but what does it mean to work for the glory of God? What does it mean for your vocation to provide glory to God? That's a huge question. I don't have time to answer all of it now, but I want to give you a few um, a few tips and a few pointers and a few thoughts out of Genesis 2. Um, first of all, we have all sorts of wrong notions. Some of you may want to avoid work. Some of you may worship work. So a friend of, a friend of mine and I, we have an ongoing debate. If someone gave you a million dollars, what would you do? And this will tell you probably whether you'd like to avoid work or whether you'd like to worship work. My friend swears he would be landed gentry. (laughs) So he just wants to sit around. He says, if someone gave me a million dollars, I would sit around at home all the time, reading books and watching movies. Interesting. Anybody else feel that way? Not me. (laughs) If someone gave me a million dollars... I would work twice as hard as I do right now. <laughs> I always, that's, that's the joke that I have with him. I would keep doing everything that I'm doing because I love to work. Give me something to do. I can't not have a moment where there's something that I'm not doing. When I'm at home, you know, I'm kind of pacing around in the kitchen. Let me wash the dishes. Let me do this. I'm not sure what to do in that dead space when I, when I don't have a task before me or at hand. But here, what you see is one, Adam is not to avoid work. He's given it. It's good. This isn't a life of of just leisure and of bliss, nor will eternity be an eternity spent like angels, you know, sort of wandering around in some kind of ether. It will be working and crafting and creating and making things. But on the other hand, we shouldn't worship the gifts that God has given us. We shouldn't worship the work or find our identity in our work. So what do we need to do? You need to examine your work. 
You do need to think about why you're doing what you're doing. You need to uh, trust where he has put you if you're looking for another job or thinking about it. And you need to glorify him where you are. And um, one of the things I think that this means, I think the other error that we make commonly is we often think that we have to have some sort of, Christians at least particularly, think that we have to have some sort of super spiritual vocation. That you have to be a minister or a pastor or a missionary. And I've been into lots of lectures and lots of things, especially... um, in Christian schools and places like that, where they say you need you if you don't do something spiritual, then you are some kind of second-class citizen or something along those lines. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. God Himself has given us all sorts of things to do, all sorts of things to create, all sorts of things to make, and if we are examining those things in light of His kingdom then those things can be worship, and those things are worship. I mean, if you are um, teaching, your teaching matters if you love students, the students that you're with. If you are a farmer or a gardener, that matters if you see the world as God's gift. If you are a tax collector, if you work for the IRS, that matters if you treat the people that you're around with dignity rather than with suspicion. See, what we're doing is we're working for and with the other creatures that God has made. And he's calling us, he's calling us to examine um, what, uh, what Frederick Buechner says in, in a very famous off-quoted line. The place where God calls you is where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. Have you ever heard that before? where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. God has created you with desires. He's created you with dreams. He's created you with gifts and abilities. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to match up those things with what the needs are around us. And there's a need for all sorts of things. Okay, I have a lot more to say on that, but I won't. It's not a surprise that my favorite movie is Chariots of Fire. When I I feel God's pleasure when I run, right? Not when I'm off being a missionary doing those things. And if you want a really good chapter on this, the best one I've read lately is from a book by a guy named Scott McKnight. And it's called One Life. And you can just flip near the end and there's a chapter called Vocation Life uh, where I got some of these ideas from. And he does a very excellent job of calling us to do the things that we do for God's glory. Whether that means um, making coffee, sweeping streets, teaching science, building buildings, whatever it is that we do. Okay, let's look at one more thing that's present in the garden. The third thing God provides in this perfect place is relationships. Relationships between God and man that are unbroken. Relationships between humans and others. And if you look there, you find marriage. If you've been paying really close attention to Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see that in Genesis 1, God is always called, the translation for the term God that they use all throughout Genesis 1 is simply God. Elohim. Basically, that means God in his transcendent power, majesty, and authority. But what's interesting in Genesis 2 is God is called the Lord God. And you'll see that in verse 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 15. It's all throughout. And that's the name associated with God as the Redeemer, the Redeemer of his people. This is the God who hears the cry of his people and visits Moses. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is a relational God. And he is related to himself throughout eternity. He creates humans in in his image, and he provides for them 
companionship and other relationships that are present there. So look, in, in verse 7, he, he, cre- he creates Adam. In verse 8, he speaks to him. And it, look at verse um, 18. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. And this relational God has created humans to be in relationship with one another. And these relationships are, are wonderful. And let's look, we'll, we'll, for sake of time, we'll look real quickly at this first relationship in verse 18 through 24. And I want to just make a, I'm, I'm going to make a list of notes and you can copy down what you want or just listen. Um, this, this relationship was purposeful. It was instituted by God. Notice, it's not just haphazard or something that happens. He takes Adam. He says, look, it's not good for you to be by yourself. I want you to see that. And therefore, I'm going to bring someone else to be there with you. Secondly, um, in it, the partners are different and they're totally complementary. Eve is taken out of his side to be partner to him. And she's called a helper for him. And this is not some sort of lower status. In fact, that word helper is used most often throughout the Old Testament to describe God himself as the helper of his people. And so we have to remember that they're different and complementary. This goes right along with Genesis 127. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Third, They are equal, both equally in the image of God. Fourth, their relationship is characterized by joy. One of my favorite things about this passage is that Adam breaks out into a poem. He's so excited to have someone there with him. He's so excited with this wife that's been given to him. He's so overcome that he, 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 that there's this poem here right in the middle of the text. It's like he's overflowing with joy. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And he identifies himself in relationship to her, man, woman, together. Fifthly, this relationship provides a pattern for all future human um, marital relationships. That's what verse 24 is. This stuff is not just to remain in the garden. It's to characterize how we relate to one another throughout the future. It's not a one-time deal. And fifthly, they were naked and they were unashamed. Naked and unashamed. And that may be the two most striking words in in this whole chapter. Sexuality apart from shame, apart from pain, apart from brokenness, humanity at at its most vulnerable and open, yet at its most content and most fulfilled. Do you see the amazing provisions that God has given here? In life, in worship, in work, in relationships, how are we going to respond How are we going to respond to this good God? Or maybe you're asking the more more appropriate question. Where can we find a place like this? (laughs) Did I hear somebody say Liberty Church? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Amen. I pray that the restoration is taking place here. Where are we going to find a place like this? Where are we going to go for God's provision? We haven't gotten very far in the divine drama, but the stage is set. And I want to walk you through it really quickly. Eden is a well-watered garden. It is a life-giving, promised land. And in Genesis 12, you're going to see that God calls one man 
to go out and says, I'm going to give you a promised land and I'm going to fill it with your descendants. And in Exodus 3, God says to Moses, this is going to be a land flowing with milk, flowing with honey, overabundant. You're going to be saved and rescued. And all throughout the Psalms, you find phrases like this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, Jerusalem, the center of Israel. Jerusalem is the center of Israel, the place where God dwells with his people. It is a well-watered, life-giving Eden. The temple of God is the place that all Israel looks to for life and for power and for support and for the provision that we've been talking about today. And if you flip through the prophets, I know I'm doing this so quickly, but if you flip through the prophets, those guys anticipate a day when restoration will be complete. A day, um, Joel writes, when a fountain will come out of the temple, life will flow out like a river from the temple. And Ezekiel 47, it's flowing out so much that it's covering his ankles and it's covering Ezekiel's knees and it's up to his waist and he's almost drowning in the provision. He's drowning in the abundance. And when Jesus Christ appears on the scene, he calls himself the true temple. Go back and read John 2, 19 through 22. Tear down this temple and I'll raise it again. And he says to the people, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart, as the scripture has said, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true Eden. And it's no wonder that on the cross, as he was dying, out of his side flowed water, life-giving water, along with the blood. He's inviting you to come to him for life, to come to him for the provisions that are originally found in the garden and the spiritual renewal that you need to make sense out of your vocation, to make sense out of your relationships. And this Jesus is preparing a place for you. And I don't have time. I'm going to cut it off. But go home and read Revelation 21 and 22. He's going to come back. He's going to recreate. And there you'll find that same life eternal, the river of life flowing through that future heavenly city where God dwells and where we reign with him. Having been provided for forever. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you as our provider. We look to you for life and for worship and for goodness and for relational relationships. And we ask that even if today is a time when we are struggling or feeling impatient or don't see you coming, that this would be a time uh, when we would renew our trust in you as the one who provides for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.